So our great enemy, we actually have three of them. We have the world, the flesh, and the devil. But our ancient enemy, the one who has fought us from our creation, the devil himself, is described in the Bible as the father of all lies, that his nature is to lie. This is in contrast with God, whose nature is that which is true, to tell that which is true. Well, the devil, who is the father of all lies, which means he's behind all lies, often has two great lies that he would convince the world. The first lie is that God would be willing to forgive others of their sin, but he's not willing to forgive you of your sin. In other words, the things that you have done are too great for the healing of the gospel. God can save them, God can forgive them, but God will not forgive you. The second great lie of the devil is that the good news of the gospel is good news for somebody else. It's good news for your neighbor. It's good news for the other person, anybody but you. Those are the two lies of the devil. Now, how would you combat these lies? What scriptures or passages would you point to to show that these things are not true? Well, for the first one, that God would forgive others of their sin, but he would not forgive you. There are several passages you could go to. There are several examples you could go to. The ones that come off the top of my head immediately is David, a mass murderer and an adulterer, and he was forgiven by the Lord. Many of us maybe have spiritually committed those things, but certainly probably none of us are guilty of mass murder. If you are, please go tell somebody about that horrible act that you've committed. And then you have, of course, Saul, who's guilty of mass murder again. Even worse, he's killing specifically Christians. It doesn't really get much worse than that, and that's why Paul says that he is the chief of sinners, that if God can forgive him, he can surely forgive you of your sins. So those are the two examples I would point to, and we can go to many scriptures. There is the passage that we just looked at in 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness, all, all of your sins. Oh, here's another one that's actually quite interesting. It's in the passage about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which everyone, of course, is frightened and confused about. But in that passage, we actually have this wonderful gospel promise. It's found in Matthew 12, 31. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, lay aside for a second what's the blasphemy of the Spirit, because that's a whole different sermon. You can ask me about that afterwards. By the way, it's uh, refusing to believe in the gospel. We can talk more about that. But what's wonderful, though, is before he says the blasphemy of the Spirit will not be forgiven, he says every sin and every blasphemy will be forgiven. So that's the first answer to the lie of the devil, that the gospel is, or that forgiveness from the gospel can be given to someone else, but not my son. Now, the second lie is that the gospel is good news, not for you, but for somebody else. And so how would you answer that objection, or that problem, or that lie from the devil. Well, our passage tonight will be a good place that you could go to to show people that that's not true. The gospel is good news for you, for your neighbor, for every single person in the world. The devil is a liar. Please turn to 1 John chapter 2, but for context, I'll go back to 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. I'm going to read all the way through chapter 2, verse 6. This is the message which we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. 
If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, he is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So the very first thing I want to point out here in our passage, it begins with the language of my little children, my little children. Uh, Neil recently sent me a podcast uh, called The Rise and the Fall of Mars, Mars Hill, talking about Mark Driscoll. Very interesting podcast. And I listened to actually all of it. Thank you, Neil. And um, in one of the podcasts, it had Mark Driscoll saying to his congregation that the church is full of babies, and he is their spiritual father, and he changes their diapers. Well, I don't think that's what John is saying here. He's not calling everyone spiritual babies, and he's their spiritual father changing their spiritual diapers. That was rude and unkind, and just simply not true. But we do have this familial language. We do have this sense of they are his little children, and that does put him in a fatherly figure. John here is in the latter part of his life. In fact, First John is probably one of the latest books of the Bible to be written. John is very much so an older man. He's a senior citizen, if you want to put it that way. But not only is he a senior citizen in age, but he's been walking with the Lord year by year by year by year. He probably has... 50, 60, 70 years potentially of walking with the Lord compared to somebody that maybe he's writing to that only has maybe a few decades, maybe less, maybe even a few years, if not months. And so because he's so much older than them, probably in age, but definitely spiritually, he views himself as their spiritual father, as one who is older in the faith, and they are his little children, his dear little children. And this language, a familial language, should be familiar to us. Um, we often call each other brothers or sisters or a family in God. We have spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers, and we're to be brothers and sisters to one another. We're to have this close intimacy. This is actually one of the promises of the gospel. In Mark ten twenty nine, Jesus says this. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who, who has left house or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not see a hundredfold now in this time. What does that look like? Houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions, and 
and the age to come, eternal life. This is also parallel to what Jesus says, that if you do not hate your father and your mother, your sister and your brother, then you're not worthy of me. Jesus calls for ultimate allegiance. Jesus says, you are to be attached to me. And if any relationship gets in the way, you're to put me first, even if it causes you to lose that other relationship. But he doesn't just tell you to lose relationships. He says, I will give you relationships. I'll give you brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. Who are these people? They're not angels. They're us. They're you. They're me. We are to be the family of God. Not just in word only, but in reality. I mean, even this passage, houses. You see that? Well, you're not looking at it if you want to. It's Mark 10, 29 and 30. But in that passage, he says that you are to gain houses. Now, this is not communism. But what this is saying is one of the wonderful things about having family members is that they're reliable. They're dependable. My parents live down the street. You know what that means for me? I'm never going to be homeless. It's not going to happen unless I really do something really terrible (laughs) against them. But seriously, I could just stop by their house right now and say, Mom, Dad, can I stay here? Maybe I can say, Mom, Dad, I'm staying here. (laughs) And they would let me in because they love me and they care about me. And that's how we are to be to one another. You know, I often say, you know who is a true friend? Someone who truly cares about you? Somebody that you're willing to ask a favor. And that's how I know when somebody thinks I'm a real friend of them. When they call me in the middle of the night, this actually happened to me, they called me in the middle of the night and said, I'm locked out of base, can you come pick me up? Sure, <laughs> let's go. You pick them up, right? Because they knew that I was a true friend of them. That was my brother in Christ. He treated me like a brother. If I was his brother, he would do that. I'm his brother in the Lord, he would do that. Well, is that how we are to other people? When people ask us for favor, do we grumble and complain and act mad or make excuses and not want to do it? Or do we see this as an opportunity to serve the Lord and to show that we really are a family of God? This is the way we're supposed to be. Now, the good thing about this familial tie is, as I'm sure some of you or all of you have, many of you have siblings, and you know that siblings don't always get along. So this doesn't necessarily mean that you're a best friend. But this does mean that there's a tie, there's a love, there's a care. None of you should ever wonder if you will be homeless as long as the people of God are there for you, as long as the people of God are around, you always know you have someone to go to, someone to love you, someone to talk to you, someone to care for you. And again, be that person for somebody else. Find somebody who's lonely, put your arm around them, tell you I love you, and invite them in. Invite them to your house, serve them, love them, treat them as family, because this is the way it ought to be. And it's exactly the way that John saw himself. He says, my little children. One last exhortation here. For those of you who are older in the Lord, not just older in age, but older in the Lord, find some people who are younger than you and don't just view them as babies who have spiritual diapers that you need to wipe, but view them as your little children, people to love on, people to invest in, people to grow, and to see them mature in the Lord. It's not just about how great you are. The higher you up, the more people you can serve. That's what Jesus said. Those who are of the world, they look for power and wealth and prestige to boast themselves up to say how much greater they are than everybody else. But Jesus said, for those who are high, they will be made low and they will serve others. The higher you're up in the Lord, the more people you can help and the more people you should be helping. John goes on to say, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. 
But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. To fully understand what's going on here, we have to understand what happened before. So if you look back to 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, he initially begins by telling them that God is light and in him there is no darkness. And so if you say that you're walking in the light, but you walk in darkness, you are a liar and the truth is not in you. In other words, if you have ongoing, unrepentant, gross sin, now define gross sin as sin that if people found out, maybe the elders or even any other Christian found out that you were doing it, church discipline would start to happen on you. You'd be rebuked by one, two, and then eventually a church and then eventually be excluded. This would be like the man who had his stepmother. That was an example of gross sin. That was an example of this. This is not talking about minor sins, imperfections, getting down, getting back up, getting down, getting back up once more. This is talking about gross, heinous sin, unrepentant behavior. He says, if you're like that, you walk in darkness. You do not walk with God. You walk in darkness and the truth is not in you. But then he goes on to say in 1 John, verse 7, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Notice the present tense. He cleanses us. He continuously does this. The reason why he continuously does this is because we continue to sin. This is the ongoing sin life of the believer. And then there's immediately people who deny this in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So there's this balance. If you live in gross sin, you're not a believer. A true believer walks in the light, but he still needs the cleansing ministry of Jesus because he has ongoing sin in his life. Not the gross sin, but continuous sin. He's still not perfect. This is where Jesus goes down and washes the feet of his disciples. Your whole body is clean, but your feet, day by day, get dirty. This is why in the Lord's Prayer we pray every day, forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. Whenever somebody sins against you, every day you should remember you've sinned against God. And so just as God's forgiven you, you should forgive others. That's the idea. So there are people who say, no, we don't sin. I used to be a sinner, but now I'm a saint. Sin is no longer a problem for me. The Bible says these people, they deceive themselves. The truth is not in them. Why? Because if they had the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit would convict them. That's what the Holy Spirit does, right? It convicts people of sin, righteousness, and judgment. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, you can see that you sin. You can see that you need to do, as verse 9 says, confess your sins. Because Christ is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins daily and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness daily. If you feel like, I don't know if I should go to confess this sin once more to God, go back to this verse. You to confess it daily. God does not grow tired of you confessing your sins. He invites you every single day to confess your sins, so every single day he can apply that blood to your feet and cleanse it once more. He's not tired. The devil will convince you that he's tired so that you stop doing it and be disobedient to him. But we're told to go back to the Lord. And then verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. To actually claim to be sinlessly perfect at any time in the past or the present, not the future because we will be sinlessly perfect in the future, but in the past and the present, actually makes God a liar. Because God says you're not. He says you're a sinner. He says you still have the flesh and you constantly fail. And you need to constantly go to him. Now we can go back to 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. And he says, guys, my little children, my beloved I'm not saying these things so you may sin, right? Maybe some of you, as I was saying, that the ongoing sin life of the believer, maybe the devil was whispering in your ear, that means it's okay for the sin. Paul says explicitly, no. I mean, John says explicitly, that's not what I'm saying. No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that you should not sin. 
I'm writing these things so you do not do these things. The primary message here is don't walk in darkness because if you do, then you're probably not a believer at all. But then he gives those caveats. He gives those caveats. I'm saying these things so that you do not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And that is the balance. The balance is that even though we are not to sin, we still do sin. And thank God when we do sin, we have that perfect advocate, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our advocate. He is the one who we can go to. And we can confess those sins to him and he'll wash us away. You know, the Catholics, they confuse some things about Jesus. And so they view Jesus as nothing more than a harsh, stern judge. And because of that, you couldn't go to Jesus anymore. You couldn't go to God because you offended God, so they said. You couldn't go to Jesus because Jesus is God, so you offended him too. And so who could you go to? Mary. That's how you had to go to. Mary was the understanding one. Mary was the mother who could convince mean Jesus to let you in. But it's a corruption. It's not true. It's evil. First off, you're not to have any communion with Mary. Mary cannot hear you if she can. She's telling you to pray to Jesus. There's absolutely nothing in the Bible about communing with dead people except to condemn that behavior as that which is evil. And second, it's a blasphemy to the person of God. It's saying that Mary is more gracious and loving than Jesus, which is crazy. Jesus is the mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. Jesus is the one who's compassionate and loving and is the one who is your advocate. That's what it says here, that Jesus, not Mary, not your pastor, not anyone else, Jesus is your advocate. Now, what is an advocate? An advocate is someone who speaks on your behalf. An advocate is when everyone says, throw him out, and someone speaks up and say, no, let him in. This one's mine. I stand up for this individual. I'm going to mediate. I'm going to speak on their behalf. So we do have an advocate with the Father. We do have an advocate with God, the one that we've sinned against, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, why is Jesus Christ called the righteous one? Or why is his righteousness connected to his, him being an advocate? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One, if Jesus Christ was not righteous, then who could he advocate for? Nobody, right? I mean, that was the, kind of the problem with the Old Testament system. You had a high priest, he needed to advocate for himself. Because he was a sinner. So one guy on death row can't get you off. I'd like to tell people, I'm never going to talk to a miserable person how to be happy. I'm never going to talk to a poor person how to get rich. We don't need an advocate who needs an advocate. We need an advocate that's right with God. And who does that leave us with? Muhammad? No. He wasn't right with God. Joseph Smith? No. You? Me? No. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's only one perfectly sinless person, and that person says, hire me. I'll be your advocate. Right. And as of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the advocate. He is the righteous one. The Bible also says that the righteous prayers, here in John 5, 16, it says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. And I've actually seen Roman Catholics go to this passage themselves and say, Well, the prayer of a righteous person uh, has great power, so who's more righteous than Mary? Who's more righteous than Mary? <laughs> Jesus Christ is more righteous than Mary. The most righteous person in the world says, I'll pray for you. I'll advocate for you. I will ask the Father to forgive you of your sins, and he will most certainly listen to him. So this role of Jesus Christ being the advocate, being the one who speaks in our behalf, is actually, I would say, one of the neglected doctrines of the Christian faith. We often highlight, rightfully so, 
the justification work of God, his application of his blood. The Bible also points to Jesus as our advocate as one of the main ways that he saves us. And we see this in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 33 says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So Christ died so you could be justified. And now as a justified person, he ever lives to make intercession for you. This is that, there's two acts of this intercession. The one act, as we see in the case of Peter, as you fall, why do you think you get up? Because Christ is interceding for you. He is praying that your faith may not fail. The reason the last time you sinned and got back up was because of the intercession of Christ. You should thank him. Don't pat yourself on the back, pat Christ on the back and say, thank you that you prayed for me and that my faith has not failed because of you. That's the first way we see that Christ intercedes for us. He preserves us through faith. The other way is this application of Christ's blood on our account for our daily sins. I mean, how many sins did it take for Adam to be kicked out of the garden? One. So if Christ did not apply his blood to you on a daily account and you daily sin, what would that mean for you? That means you would lose your salvation. You would go to hell. But thank God that Christ continues to intercede for you and continues to apply his blood to you so that no sin sticks on you and all your sins are removed by his blood. Those are the two ways that Christ intercedes for us. We see the same idea found in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 says, Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by his death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. You see the idea? If while we were enemies, Christ could reconcile an enemy and make him a friend, how much more so can Christ keep a friend as a friend? How much more so you as a friend who is messed up like a Peter, can he apply his blood to wash it away? If he can reconcile an enemy, he can certainly keep a friend and keep a friend in right relationship with God. So we have to thank God from beginning to end. That's why it's by faith that we're saved from beginning to end. We need Jesus' advocacy. We need Jesus to stand up for us from beginning to end. Not just where we began the race, but how we're going to make it to the end. So thank God that, that Jesus Christ is righteous. Thank God that he's unstained, that he is the perfect advocate, and he ever lives to make intercession for us. So if you sin, we have Jesus Christ the righteous. One other interesting quote, a commentator said this, a righteous advocate does not undertake an unrighteous cause. I'll say it again. A righteous advocate does not undertake an unrighteous cause. Jesus Christ is a righteous advocate, and he is bringing his people to the end, to salvation. It's a righteous cause. This is the whole reason that we're still on this earth, is because God is still collecting a people, and he's constantly advocating the righteous cause for us to be where he is. That's what Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer. I pray that these two will also be with me where I am. Christ is praying for you to come home to be with him. So Jesus Christ is the advocate. He is the one that we can go to when we sin. If anyone does sin, we have the advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who speaks to his Father on our behalf so that our sins are washed away and do not stick for us. So let's look at, look at verse 2. He, that's Christ, is the propitiation 
for our sins. Now, what does this mean? Propitiation. That's not a word that we use every day. Now, maybe if you studied ancient religions, you know this word. Or maybe if you studied this passage, you know this word. In fact, this word propitiation only shows up, this actual Greek word only shows up two other places. And there's really only one other place really in the Bible that this exact word shows up in most uh, English Bibles. It's in Romans. We'll look at that in a second. So what does this word propitiation mean? And why didn't we get an easier translation here, right? Maybe you have the NIV. You'll see like atoning sacrifice or some of the more interpretive ones get rid of propitiation because it's not a word we use. But it's a good word. It's a theological word. It's a word that we should camp out for a little bit. Propitiation, to propitiate, is to appease. And this word has caused so many people problems because it implies an angry deity. A deity who is angry that needs to be propitiated. And it gets you to see what this was like is with ancient false religions, you had these demons essentially that were mad at you. And you had to appease them by sacrifices, sometimes even the greatest sacrifice, which would be a human sacrifice, so that they would no longer be mad at you and they would no longer try to smite you. And maybe you could even win them on your side so they would bless you. That's what the word propitiate means. It means to appease. Now, all that pagan nonsense we can get rid of, but the core concept of needing peace with God is, in fact, here. We do need peace with God. Think what the Bible says. It says that, If we do not believe in Jesus Christ, the wrath of God abides on us. So God is, in fact, angry with sinners. And that that is why we need to be propitiated, because we have sinned against God. And so we need God to be appeased. That's what propitiation means. Another word which is similar to it is called expiation. Expiation means to remove, to remove your sins. So there's two parts that need to happen for us to be saved. We need our sins to be removed... And then we need God not to be mad about our sins anymore. And both of those are accomplished by Jesus. Jesus removes your sin and casts it into the sea of forgetfulness. And he also appeases God in the process so he's not angry at you anymore. That he can now look at you as a son and forgive you. So Christ is the propitiation for our sins. Now we have to be careful here though and make sure that we don't set up this system where God the Father is angry and the Son is kind and the Son saves us from an angry God. That's not what's going on. First off, the whole Godhead, the whole Trinity was angry at your sin. It's an offense against God. In fact, the angels were angry at your sin. In fact, any righteous person would be angry at your sin because your sin is worthy of being angry about because it's evil. But the entire Godhead also wanted you to be forgiven, wanted you to be saved. Want it to forgive you. Kind of like a parent, right? Some of you are parents. Many of you are parents. You have a child and they make you angry because they've done wrong. But you want to forgive them. You want to bring them back. You want them to be restored. Think about the drug addict. The drug addict who is homeless. Once a drug addict is homeless and their parents are still alive, you know they have really messed up. Because the most loving people on the earth won't care for them anymore. But they want them to get help. They want to have forgiveness once again, at least if they're godly. They want that. And that's the way God the Father is. God wants to forgive people, and so that's why he has provided a way for people to be forgiven. This idea of God himself setting up the system, not simply being his arm being twisted by the Son, is taught throughout the Bible. Let's look at a few passages. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
So who's with us? Who's for us? God is for us, which is expressed by God not sparing his own son. Now, when did he not spare his own son? While we were godly or while we were yet sinners? Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners. So God set this whole plan in motion while we were yet enemies. So God is for us. You see that? God the Father is not just an angry judge. He's also a merciful God who would send his own son to redeem us in the first place. Or the most famous verse in the whole Bible, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Why would he need to do that? He already condemned. But that the world might be saved through him. God's love is the only thing that kicks it all off. Some people act allergic to God's love. This is in the Bible. We shouldn't be allergic to God's love. God's love is your only hope. God's love is the hope of the world. Without God's love, he's not sending his son. Without him sending his son, it doesn't matter because you're going to hell. We need God's love. God's love comes first. Or 1 John 4, 9. And this is the love of God made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. What's the very first thing that kicks this thing off? The love of God. We don't first love God and then God responds by sending his son. God first sends his son. And then we hear this good news of the gospel. It melts our hearts. And then we accept the son and so are saved. So we see here that the whole Godhead, the whole Trinity, really wanted to save us. God the Father wanted to save us, so he sent his son. The son wanted to save us, so he came down here. And the Holy Spirit wanted to save us, so he drew us and then applies the merit of Jesus Christ to our account. All of God wants you to be saved. All of God is part of the salvation package. And all of God is also mad when you sin. And as you live in darkness and refuse his wonderful provision. And this shows us that God is a lover at heart. God is a lover of heart. God's love is greater than his wrath. If it wasn't the case, we'd all be doomed. You realize that? If God's wrath was greater than his love, you'd be doomed. But in fact, God's love is greater than his wrath. That is why forgiveness is possible. Let me show you that in the Bible. Psalm 103 verse 8 says this, The Lord is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He's slow to anger. He's very patient. He doesn't want to bring the smack down. He's long-suffering toward you. Do you not know that his kindness and goodness is meant to lead you to repentance? He's slow to anger, but he's abounding in steadfast love. Well, here's another way that the Bible contrasts his anger with his love. In Exodus 20, verse 4, it says this, You shall not make for yourself the carved image or any likeness of anything. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation to those who hate me. So his, we can go into that. If someone wants to go into that, we can. But the point here is, though, that his wrath lasts, in some respect, to the third and the fourth generation. What about his love? But showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation, to those who love me and keep my commandment. Now, what's bigger, three or four or thousands? God's love is greater than his wrath, and that is why he offers salvation in the first place. If it wasn't that way, he would just be sent straight to hell. 
He would send and be straight to hell. There will be no chance of salvation whatsoever. Praise the Lord for his love. Praise the fact that the God extended grace to you and offered you salvation. This is why we praise him. Because his grace has conquered his wrath. And he's provided a way to be both just and holy in the cross of Jesus. Now, in the little time we have left here, let's finish out that last part of the passage in verse 2. It says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, but also the sins of the whole world. Now, obviously, the Bible nowhere, ever, at all, teaches universalism. It's not found there. Actually, if you go to the very end of the book, you know what you find? You find this wonderful city of God coming down where there's no more death, no more pain, no more suffering. In that same passage, it says... The unbelieving will not inherit this. This is not a place for the unbelieving. Their, their portion will be the lake of fire. The Bible is very emphatic. It's appointed man wants to die and after this is judgment. If you die in your sins, you die without hope. You perish. So this is not teaching universalism. What is this teaching? Well, this is teaching, in my esteem, this is teaching the fact that God has provided an opportunity for everyone be saved. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the reality that every individual, if they believe in Jesus Christ, will be saved. Matthew 11 says this, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. That is the message that you go to preach every person. You're to tell every single person, come to Christ. You're not to wait see evidences, whether they respond positively or not. He says, go out in all the world and make disciples. Every single individual, you were to go, no matter if they're hardened, no matter if they're a sinner, no matter if they have violated you, you were to do that. In fact, there have been great examples of this where people have been persecuted, being tortured by people. If you would think it was anyone you would not preach the gospel to, it's someone who's torturing you. I remember an account where someone was mutilating someone's child in front of them, and they were unable to do anything, and they preached the gospel to such a person. Why? Because we're to send this message to every person. This is good news for every person. This is good news for Saul. It's good news for your neighbor. It's good news for everyone. Jesus, Isaiah 51 says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread, and you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear. Come to me. Hear that your soul may live. You say this to everybody. The person who's not doing the right and the person who's doing the right, you tell them, come. Come to Jesus and be saved. Romans 10.21 says, All day long I've held out my hand to a disobedient and contrary people. God himself is not afraid to use this imagery. He says, come. Come. All day long. Acts 7.51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised and hardened ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. John 5.39, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come that you may have life. You refuse to come that you may have life. Ezekiel 33, verse 11, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked may turn from his ways and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Deuteronomy, 10, Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life that you and your offspring 
may live. One more passage. Romans 3.25, the other passage where the word propitiation is found. God put forth Christ as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This is the gospel. This is the answer to the initial question. If someone says, is the gospel good news for me? What can you tell them? Yes, the gospel is good news for you. God put Christ as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Or just think about what the jailer said. Sir, what must I do to obtain eternal life? What answer would you give? Repent and believe in the gospel and you will be saved. You can say that to anybody because of the truth of this passage, because the gospel is good news for everyone. The gospel is that God so loved the world. He gave his only son. Whoever believes should not perish but have eternal life. This is not universalism. This is if you believe, you will have eternal life, and you certainly shall not perish. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father God, we thank you that we can look any man in the eye and tell them that if they call upon the name of the Lord, they shall be saved. We thank you, Lord, that there's not a sin that's so great that you cannot forgive them. We thank you, Lord, that you have forgiven a sinner like me and a sinner like so many other people in this room, Lord. And we just thank you that the very fact that we are not in your presence right now tells us you're still saving people. The fullness of the people of God have not come in. And Lord, we pray that you'd bring them in. We pray that we ourselves would have a heart for people, that we would get out of our comfort zone, share the gospel. We want to see people saved. Help us to have a burden for the lost. Help us not to abandon our first love. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.